Capital Market Insights from ICMA. Hello everyone, I'm Brian Pascoe, Chief Executive of the International Capital Market Association. We're starting the year with a series of podcasts featuring economists from leading ICMA member firms who will be sharing their views on what 2022 has in store for us in terms of the global economy and the outlook for financial markets and the fixed income space in particular. We're delighted now to have Gilles Moek, the Group Chief Economist at AXA, and welcome him to the podcast to discuss a number of these areas and points. Gilles, perhaps um, I, could, I could ask you to start off the, the conversation with a, with a reasonably broad question. Um, what is your, your central scenario for 2022 uh, growth, inflation, the general macroeconomic picture? Sure. Um, well, obviously, it's a pretty broad question, but uh, I think I can nail it down to, uh, in a way, one short sentence, which is 2020 was a year of massive compression in economic activity. 2021 was all about decompression. The economy rebounded very sharply, and this triggered actually quite a bit of, of inflation uh, as pressure on supply was very high. And for us, 2022 should be a year of absorption, if you want, of the pandemic shock, with GDP growth getting less spectacular than in 2021, simply because a lot of the catch-up has already been done uh, last year. Um, because of this slowdown, uh, pressure on supply, on global supply, should be lower, which should be consistent with uh, inflation receding to some extent in 2022. But that's a very general picture. And I think we need to be more granular on uh, the regions because um, there's for me a big difference between uh, within the developed world, between the US and Europe on the one hand. And after that, there's a big difference between the developed world in general and EM. Within the developed world, I think a big issue we have is that even if the global pressure on supply is receding, in the US, we're starting to see quite a bit of domestic uh, signals that inflation is getting entrenched. Wages in particular have accelerated a lot. And this is forcing the Fed into you know, its current you know, hawkishness. And that is going to be uh, are consistent with uh, Fed hikes in 2022 and significantly higher interest rates. And they've already started to react. But I think this is, this is only the, the beginning. In Europe, I don't think we have the ingredients for this domestic acceleration, if you want, in, in, in prices. Yes, we should start to see some additional pressure on wages, but it should remain fairly moderate. And I think the ECB will be able to remain on hold in, in 2022. Now, my last point is on the difference between EM and DM. In DM, at least what is always uh, a source of, of, of positivity, if you want, or a source of, uh, of confidence, is that central banks are very credible. So if the Fed decides to move, well, odds are they're going to be efficient and inflation is going to be nipped in the bud, even if the Fed doesn't need to hike you know, more than three or four times. Uh, same thing in Europe. If the ECB decides not to hike in 22, which is our baseline, well, you know, inflation should remain uh, in line with, with the target. Situation is very different in a lot of emerging markets where central banks are not as credible and where we would expect actually quite a bit of tightening 
in 222. If you add to the mix the fact that China is definitely not growing very, very quickly because the Chinese authorities don't want China to grow too quickly, that's not a great environment for you. So, um, I mean, that, that's a, a very broad subject matter, as we said, and, and thanks for being so concise and clear on, on the different views and compartmentalization, again, because I think it's not a one size fits all story. Um, and certainly there's some very sort of different parts of the cycle that we're facing on a global basis. Um, but you mentioned last year, I guess, you know, there was a significant decompression, which I think saw very, very strong equity market performance in particular. This year, perhaps more absorption. Uh, and perhaps the continuation of more caution from the global uh, investor community around fixed income. I mean, what does all this translate into uh, in terms of um, AXA IM's asset allocation strategy uh, and recommendations to clients? I can give you my personal recommendations. And those personal recommendations would be that, you know, obviously the bond market is going to be very, very, very difficult in, in 2022 because, um, and we can see that in Europe as well, even if the ECB doesn't want to hike, you can already see some contagion from the US onto the European bond market. So yields are going up, you know, even in, in the regions, in the countries where, where monetary policy remains very accommodative. So you know, there's not a lot of super great idea that I could have on the fixed, uh, fixed income side. On equity, if, if I'm consistent with my macro view, all this should be normally a bit more supportive for European equity than for US equity for different reasons. First of all, because I really think that you know, whereas in the US we should see an overall reduction in liquidity, especially now that the Fed is talking about reducing the size of its balance sheet, we're very, very far from it in Europe. And the second reason is quite simply the weight of high tech in, in the US indices. If you've got higher interest rates, if you've got a reduction in liquidity, the first victims should be uh, the high-tech sector. We can already see that actually in, at, at the beginning of, of 2022. I think there's, it's a theme that is going to continue in 2022. So by contrast, European equity is going to look a little bit more interesting. That's good to know. Thanks. And again, we've talked, you know, again, about a potentially more systematic and systemic inflation picture in, in the US, you know, the, the general trend, I guess, across all markets towards rate increases at least the potential tapering or reduction in, in liquidity uh, from the central bank perspective, again, depending on, on where we are in, in the cycle. I think all of that kind of adds up, uh, you know, let's say for a relatively bearish outlook on fixed income, just to hone in on that, that part of the market a little bit more specifically. I mean, where would you kind of um, you know, identify particular or, or specific areas of opportunity in, in the fixed income space, if that's possible to identify? Uh, or do you think it's going to be just a very, very general, um, you know, outlook of, of caution uh, that we're facing going into next year and, and probably this year rather and, and probably beyond? There's probably going to be maintained interest, at least in the first half of the year, for inflation-indexed bonds. That's it, It's already started and, and we're probably going to probably see more of this. You know, there will be appetite for protection given you know, the how prominent the inflation theme currently is. Honestly, I think that in the second half of the year, especially in Europe, inflation is going to start receding. Interest for this asset class uh, may actually uh, decline quite a bit. Uh, so that's that's an area of, of, of interest. Now, if it's it's for me, it's more a question of relative pain rather than relative 
returns, relative gains. If I focus on Europe, usually if you start seeing uh, at the global level reduction in liquidity, higher rates in the US, it's the most fragile signatures which are going to pay the price for it. So that is going to be potentially a bit complicated for peripheral bonds in, in 2022. And as usual, by contrast, if you've got pressure in the periphery, you still have a flight to quality towards the, the central, the core signatures. So it should still be okay uh, in terms of global return for core bonds, but yeah, definitely tougher in the periphery. Understood, thanks. And if you look at the overall global picture, I think you've got a, given us a very good synopsis there of, of the accept position. Do you see any potential risks, be they geopolitical or otherwise, uh, that could derail some of the central scenarios that you've outlined? Yeah, quite quite a few risks actually uh, that we need to, to to address. I mean, one risk obviously has to do with uh, the pandemic because so far, you know, Omicron seems to be more manageable than could be feared at the very beginning of, of the wave. But you know, things can obviously continue to, to to get more complicated. One thing, one particular risk around the pandemic situation, which could be problematic for twenty two, is the continuation of the zero COVID policy in China. If we really see the emergence of an Omicron uh, wave in China, given their zero COVID policy, we could end up with uh, quite a massive disruption in Chinese supply. And the world has become even more dependent on Chinese supply since the start of, of the pandemic. So you know, I have a sort of very benign macro scenario in 22 where growth you know, slows down but remains robust. If we have you know, uh, an exit in China, that would be more, more complicated. Uh, closer to home in Europe, we definitely need to you know, keep an eye on what's going on in Ukraine, if, if only because of the knock-on effect on gas prices and the fact that, you know, as I said so far, the inflation spike has, has been less of a problem in Europe than in the US. Now, if, you if we continue to have pressure on gas, that could add to our, our problems that would be detrimental to a purchasing power in Europe. So I continue to keep an eye on this beyond the you know, generic uh, confidence effect, negative confidence effect that they would have. So yeah, they, and, and finally, something which has become entrenched, structural, it's the, the conflicts, uh, the cold conflict between, between China and the US. I mean, it did not disappear with Donald Trump, uh, it continues to be with us. It's definitely something we need to continue monitoring. That's good, thank you very much. Um, I'd like to turn now, I think, to two areas uh, which are very core to, to, um, to ICMA and, and how we engage with members. Firstly, sustainable finance, and then secondly, uh, the discussion and the debate and, and the, the developments around FinTech and, and digitalization. Uh, but firstly, focusing in on, on sustainable finance, and I think coming back to the inflation uh, outlook scenario that, that you touched on in terms of perhaps that being a little bit more uh, of a problem uh, inherently in, in, in the US than, than potentially it is, is in Europe. But looking more broadly, um, you know, do you think that that climate change and some of the initiatives that are, that are underway, uh, that they can be a long term source of inflation, you know, that could perhaps also influence the, the, the outlook? It's a, it's a very interesting question from a theoretical and practical point of view. So theoretically, you could say, no, there's no reason why you know, uh, the transition should be inflationary, simply because normally what it would trigger is what the economists call a relative price shock. Basically, you would increase the price of uh, carbon, highly carbonated products if overall spending doesn't change. And if the cost of those products rises, well, by definition, you need to reduce 
spending on the on the rest and because of that prices on the rest normally slow slow down so from a theoretical point of view there should not be uh, uh, necessarily uh, an impact from a practical point of view i'm afraid that we will see some impacts simply because those you know restabilizing uh, mechanisms take time to materialize. So it takes one, two, three years before people change their their consumption patterns, so that you know we eliminate those relative price price shocks. So yes, unfortunately, I think it will add to the pressure on on prices. Um, my view on this is that at the moment we are seeing the sort of most positive impact on the economy of the transition because it's all about investment you know, as a reaction to the pandemic. And to support the recovery, governments almost everywhere have responded by a massive investment injection in, in, in green projects. So we are benefiting from this. But my guess is that in two, three, four years from now, it's going to be a bit less about investment and a, a bit more about carbon tax, border tax, for instance, which is getting increasingly popular. So yes, probably all this tends to be inflationary. Yeah. I mean, we've certainly seen one or two comments in the media from official institutions uh, exactly. in the recent days um, around that topic. So I think it'll be interesting to, to see how that, that does evolve, as you say, um, be, be that hypothetically or, or, or practically. Uh, but talking specifically around, you know, Europe, um, and I think the EU in particular has really uh, established a strong lead and, and a very, very strong position in sustainable finance globally um, around the taxonomy, around the the, the, the various other initiatives that have taken place. I mean, how do you assess the, the EU Green Deal so far in terms of the progress that's been made, uh, you know, the initiatives that have been undertaken and the impact that it's having uh, across the, the, the broader agenda? I think it's serious. It's definitely serious. I mean, it was, for me, it was a wake-up call that the EU decides to launch uh, a mutualized investment package and mutualized was very important which means that we're not going to let more fragile countries know uh, deal with their their issues on, on their own with a third of the money going to digital and uh, and green projects that's definitely for me a game changer and what i think is interesting is that we had a number of countries which so far had lagged behind the, the general conversion to transition one 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 case i have in mind is italy for instance which it was not doing much, actually, in terms of uh, transitioning. And thanks to the money coming from the EU, which Italy has decided to take in bulk, they could have decided to take only the transfers, they took the transfers and they took the loans, they're going to probably catch up quite quickly on, on transition. So it's real. I would say you know, it's more real than what the US is doing. You know, the US started the... Uh, with a new administration which promised a lot in terms of green investment. For now, it's not really materializing. Europe on this one is definitely taking the lead. And obviously, it's having a huge impact on both the sell side and, and the buy side of the market. You know, and we're seeing the manifestation of, of that with, again, the taxonomies and the, the reporting and disclosure infrastructure and requirements are, are, that are coming through. Um, if we look at the SFDR, for, for example, and, and think about the impact um, you know, on an investor such as, as AXA, a very large global player. Um, also think about, you know, some of the broader reputational topics as well. 
uh, around greenwashing and, and other issues that have started to become very, uh, I guess, institutionalized and embedded in the way we think about market development in, in, to, in the sense that, you know, the, the intention is very much to ensure that it's a robust market with, with high levels of integrity. Um, and certainly there are large players, Axivian included, who, uh, you know, will, will have a large role to play in helping to make sure that a number of these features are firmly embedded and established to ensure that the market has integrity. I mean, what does AXA need to do as an institution to be even a more responsible investor, uh, you know, to kind of set the standards, I guess, that, that others would follow? Yeah. First of all, um, I fully agree with you that you know, what we have right now in Europe is definitely what we needed in terms of uh, regulatory environment. You know, taxonomy is going to tell us what is green, what's not. You know, that was that was a very important step uh, uh, further. CSDR will tell us, will force basically companies to disclose more on what they do on sustainability, and SFDR will help us, you know, uh, create for the customers uh, a, a much you know more comparable market when it comes to to funds. So you know all this this ecosystem that the EU is creating, I think is definitely uh, the right one. Now, what do we need to do on our on our end? Well, you may know that you know, AXA is part of uh, the Net Zero Alliance of, of asset owners, and uh, through this initiative, we've we've taken actually the the commitment uh, to reduce our carbon intensity by twenty percent by twenty twenty five, and we are in any case on a journey towards Net Zero by twenty fifty. It's 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 uh, something on in which I'm actually involved. It's not so easy to do, especially if uh, you start with a balance sheet that was not too brown, which was already actually quite quite virtuous. But there is this commitment when we report on this, and uh, I think, as you say, that it, it's very important that people understand what we do. So we have this this commitment. And I would say it goes beyond investment because we act as an asset owner but we also act as an insurer. So very recently, we, we've put out a new policy on oil and gas, you know, restricting a lot our insurance activity when it comes especially to unconventional oil. That's also something that you know, I hope will prove to uh, clients, to the market, that you know, we, we're serious. We're serious on the asset side. We're also si uh, serious on the liability side. No, that's great, you know, and I think you, 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 know, you highlight uh, the opportunity there, but also the challenge to the extent that it reaches into all different elements uh, of the investment process and the risk assessment, uh, engaging with investors, uh, you know, looking at the information as well that's coming out of the issuer side and, and the borrower side. I think it's an extremely complicated area and difficult to get right. But I think, as you pointed out at the start, it's good to have the framework that's been put in place uh, to be able to, to work around. Um, I think specifically looking at the bond markets, obviously, uh, you know, we saw almost a trillion of issuance uh, in sustainable bonds last year, obviously led by green bonds, but other elements, social, sustainably linked, et cetera, are starting to become, um, you know, more and more, I guess, commonplace. So it's an exciting time, really, in the, in the sustainable bond markets overall. Um, how do you see that market developing so far? Far, do you feel it's it's orderly? Uh, do you think we've seen enough supply because of the buy side of building up, you know, very large portfolios and levels yep. of interest uh, to buy the product? Do you, are we seeing enough product? Is that market functioning well in terms of how your portfolio managers are seeing liquidity provision or pricing dynamics? Uh, can you make any comment on on, on that on the technical side of uh, the functioning of the market? Well, you know, what we've seen, as you say, is is a massive expansion of, of issuance on this, uh, and an issuance that goes exactly in the in the direction which we think matters, which is to help companies in their transition. 
I, I think there would be a big mistake in sustainable finance if all we did every day was simply to try to source products, companies which are already green. You know, that's not going to change the world. What is going to change the world is to help companies which currently are not that green to actually contribute to the transition. And that's exactly what most of those sustainable bonds uh, are doing. My, from a technical point of view, uh, what I would say we need, and, and we've invested actually quite a bit on that, is, is to retain uh, in-house analysis capacity. We, we basically have our uh, own in-house uh, analysts looking at uh, green bonds as they as they come out, making sure that you know they are consistent with with the rules. Uh, we've done this you know, for a long time in Europe, in in the US. We're also doing it in Asia now because, as you know, China is now uh, a big issue of, of of green bonds. The the biggest issue we probably have with all this is that there is still, even if there has been some progress, there is still a lack of global harmonization on what makes a sustainable bond. That's a limit to uh, what we can do because you know, for big shops like, like ourselves, okay, we can, we can invest, we can hire the people, we can look into uh, the issuance, but we haven't reached a point at which you could say, okay, it's a green bond issued in, in China, in Mexico, in Spain or in France, and it's the same one, it has the same characteristics. No, we're very, very far from, from that. Uh, so, yeah, it's a market which is expanding a lot. There's also a lot of client appetite for this, but we still need more harmonization. No, I think that's um, very much noted. I guess things like, you know, common ground taxonomy, um, the pervasion of principles, I guess, you know, such as the ICMA green bond principles, and, and I guess the alignment of some of the higher level strategic initiatives is, is very important, as you say, to, to create that standardization and harmonization that can enable the analysis to be done, uh, you know, appropriate risk assessment, uh, comparing apples with apples that can, can really create a market that uh, has the depth, has the liquidity, has the consistency that will make it very much fit for purpose uh, looking ahead. So very valuable comments there, I think. Switching now to the other kind of, I guess, strategic topic around fintech and digitalization, and in particular, um, some of the, uh, the the digital assets, you know, that are becoming very much a focus uh, of, of the market. Uh, obviously, cryptocurrencies, uh, you know, are, are very high on, on the discussion agenda, not necessarily within the context of the fixed income markets yet. Uh, there's been a lot of talk with, with various different uh, sovereigns at different levels of developing a CBDC approach uh, in terms of how they want to use that retailer wholesale, what the implications are, how quick the rollout is going to be. I think it's a very, again, um, diverse sort of environment when, when we look at the, 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 um, the, the crypto asset and, and the stable asset uh, in, environment um, in terms of digital currencies, etc. What's the view from either your perspective or the firm view um, on, on, the, on, the, on the assessment <laughs> Uh, of these kind of various new channels of, uh, of exchange com coming through? Very, 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 very cautious. Let's start with you know, private cryptos. I find it extraordinarily uh, misleading, this idea that uh, we need to create more cryptos because we need wealth to be protected from the intervention of central banks and, and governments. Thank God we have central banks and governments to make sure that money has a, a, a value. And one thing which I think, you know, it's, it's, it's often understated and ignored, but uh, if you take Bitcoin, which is probably the worst you know, 
possible crypto currently uh, in circulation. The very fact that by nature, the quantum of Bitcoins is going to fall over time is a massive problem. It's the opposite you need. You know, for a reserve currency to operate, what makes this reserve currency efficient is actually the capacity of the central bank to create as much currency as needed in times of liquidity crunches. This is what we had in March 2020. By definition, if uh, the financial system is too dependent on cryptos and there is no capacity to decide on an increase in the size of, uh, of uh, the quantum pool of a, uh, the currency pool, we will have a problem and it will be actually consistent with more, more crises. Now, Digitals are there for a good reason, apart from the fact that you know sometimes can help a few people to evade uh, uh, tax and, 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 and other restrictions. Um, but they are there also because the traditional payment system is expensive. It's something that you know, people don't often think about, but the traditional payment system is particularly complicated and expensive. It's just that we don't see it. Um, so the technology itself, blockchain, for instance, is interesting. Um, but if we want to keep the good feature, if you want, of uh, an inexpensive system without the risks of uh, a private or automatized uh, crypto, basically what you need is central bank digital currencies. And this is being developed. But even that, I think, needs to be considered with some caution. Because if you end up with uh, a, a very highly developed uh, digital currencies controlled by central banks, there is definitely a risk of uh, hollowing the banking sector. Basically, if central banks issue digital currency, you can end up in a situation where a good chunk of what makes the day-to-day -day activity of the banking sector is going to be taken away, which might not be great from a financial stability point of view. So, yeah, I'm, I'm it's not an absolute no, we look into this, uh, but it's a very, very cautious approach. Now, I think the point you make about potential disintermediation of the, the banking system is certainly one that, you know, I've seen quite a lot of written detail around and, and, and a concern. I guess there are ways of, of managing the rollout of a central bank digital currency to mitigate against that in terms of how you use the existing channels, etc. But it's clearly one of the, the, big, the big issues. But I think what you're saying in a nutshell really is that Electronification, uh, driving efficiency, reducing cost are good things, but it needs to be done in a way that's controlled and, and still has kind of ultimate recourse to um, a unit of account of, of, of value and integrity. And I think, you know, I think it's interesting to see how this will develop. As we're saying, I think, you know, there's various stages of development um, and I guess focus on this as well from the different central banks or communities of central banks uh, around the world. Um, Again, you know, a lot of that has a, a very strong reach, potential retail implication. Do, do you see uh, a strong uh, wholesale potential impact and implication from the development of central bank digital currencies in terms of how they could impact on the fixed income markets, let's say? For me, in, in, in a first, it would not be the first effect. I think the first effect would be on international transaction in cash. Yeah. Mm -hmm movements, you know, for me, it would definitely change the way the payment system operates. On fixed income, while it could reduce, and fixed income on any market, actually, any security market, you could say that it could reduce the need of uh, higher collateralization. It could reduce, actually, the need of uh, 
having strong you know uh, compensation houses at the at the center of, uh, of the system but my guess is that the first wave because regulation would probably make sure that we would keep those uh, collateralization needs the first wave would probably hit payments so with that, I think, Gilles, we, we've covered a lot of ground there uh, across the broader macro picture, some really interesting comments and points uh, on the sustainable finance uh, agenda, uh, and then, you know, very valuable input also on the, the various different digitalization initiatives or products, I think, that we're starting to see. So um, I'd very much like to thank you for your time and your excellent insights uh, that you've shared with us today, uh, and wish you all the best. Uh, for 2022. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. For more ICMA podcasts and further information on capital markets, please visit our website, icmagroup.org.